0: You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on relevant radio 950 a.m. and 930 a.m. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in
1: Review. Good morning. I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's radio TV office. I'm very happy to be with you today. Every Saturday, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. Our broadcast week began with Bob Gilligan, Director of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, talking with Danielle Brown with USCCB. They talked about the relevance of the 2018 Pastoral Letter on Racism, Open Wide Our Hearts, The Enduring Call to Love. Let's take a listen.
2: With us on the phone, we have uh, Daniel Brown. She is the Associate Director for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, (USCCB)'s Ad Hoc Committee on Racism. Daniel, you with us?
3: I am. It's nice to hear your voice this morning. Hope you're doing well.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's been a whole, what, three days? (laughs) Two days. (laughs) Uh, Daniel and I and uh, uh, the other Catholic Conference directors were on a, uh, a Zoom call, one of our many Zoom calls we do. And uh, so we were talking on Friday instead of we're talking on Monday. Well, let's not talk tomorrow, Okay, We'll take a day off. (laughs) Daniel, uh, thanks for taking some time this morning to join us. Uh, You are um, in an interesting position these days as the associate director for the Ad Hoc Committee uh, Against Racism and and I I want to talk about the document that's out there, but also I want to talk about maybe, you know, kind of what led to the creation of your position and, and, and how you came aboard, because I think it has some ties into Chicago.
3: Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, the document, first off, um, really was the brainchild of, of one of the uh, African-American bishops at the time. Um, who really said, you know, I I think it's time for us to speak again, because previously um, the most recent document was uh, put out by the U.S. bishops in 1979. It was called Brothers and Sisters to Us, Um, and so we hadn't had anything up until that point, and um, in part Informed by the clashes that were going on in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know we had marches and 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 visual scenes of um, people t- protesting with tiki torches and things like that. Scenes that we hadn't seen since mm-hmm. you know really the 1950s and 60s. And so uh, the bishops uh, decided to to write again on the issue of racism, Um, and that was back, pardon me, around um, 2016 or 17 that the whole process began. And I think what you're referencing is that um, the committee that was really charged with writing it was the Committee on Cultural Diversity, and at the time, um, now Archbishop uh, Gustavo Sear was the chair of that committee, and so it was that committee and that committee staff who uh, spearheaded the writing of the letter and completed the writing of the letter um, in, in collaboration with the, the USCCB Standing Committee on African-American Affairs. So it was the, you know, the, the major committee that Archbishop Gustavo uh, chaired and then the Subcommittee on African-American Affairs um, who is actually now chaired by your Arch, uh, not your Archbishop, but your Auxiliary Bishop, Perry. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the document is, is that was uh, the pastoral letter that came out on racism. I think that was in 2018. It's called right. um, Open Wide Our Hearts, The Enduring Call to Love. Um, that was came out, I, I think it was approved in November of that year. So tell us That's a little right. bit about that, that document and it may as you cut right to the core and, and tell us about the document, but, you know, I think it's important to sort of define some basic terms and, and sure. defining sort of what is racism for those who we hear this term all the time. And I think we all have sort of different takes on it.
3: That's true. And, and I mean, that that point in and of itself becomes really interesting when uh, people are, are really seeking particularly right now to figure out what racism is, um, on, a, on sort of a technical level. I think, instinctually, we all have some sort of an idea of what it is. Um, but, you know, definitions, as you say, are really, really important. And, again, you know, once people start delving into the topic, they'll find definitions that are different depending on who the interpreter is. So there's a sociological definition. And then, you know, there are, are other definitions that are that are more pastoral. And the bishop's definition is, is fairly simple. And again, you can find it in the pastoral letter on racism, open wide your heart, or I'm sorry, open wide our hearts. But it is um, defined as when either consciously or unconsciously a person holds that his or her own his or her own ethnicity is superior to another and then judges another person or their races or ethnicities as inferior or un- unworthy of the same regard um, as theirs. So that's the bishop's definition. And again, people—so far, one of the critiques of the letter is that you know it's missing— a sociological definition, and a lot of times people will apply the racial prejudice plus power equals Mm -hmm. racism Mm -hmm. definition to the equation. Um, But I I really have gleaned from the bishops um, and, and from their conversations that they're really interested, and particularly my committee, is interested in being pastor's. Um, because you know, quoting one of them, you know, the last thing the world needs is another um, sociological take on on the situation. They really want to bring a pastoral um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: teaching through this letter.
2: What What do you say, or what what is our response to people? Um, and I, I I hear this a lot that. Um, you know, I'd be candid. I mean, a lot of white people who say, "Hey, look, you know, I'm not a racist. I have nothing to do with this. I didn't. I, it's not in my home. Um, it's nobody that in my immediate surroundings. So, what am what am I to do in this situation? Because I feel, I feel bad that um, you know, if somebody else doesn't fe- feel like they're being treated correctly, but I'm not doing it, so what do you want me to do about it? I, I, I hear that a lot when I'm talking to other people about this topic.
3: Sure. I mean, you know, the first analysis would would be in prayer, you know, and that person really would have to take that to the Lord and, and really discern with the Lord whether or not that's completely true. You know, it, it's not my job to um, in any sense, you know, and and I, I think I'm speaking more personally, not in terms of mm-hmm. like my actual clock in and out job, but it's it's not my role as a human being to judge what's in another person's heart, you know. Sure. But yeah, you know, if you if you're walking along with somebody um, who has that take, you know. I I think in that moment, and I have been in that moment where I kind of just have to turn personal and say something to the effect of, you know, there's been a lot of things in my past that I thought I had absolutely nothing to do with. And um, they were major issues that the world was trying to tackle. And, you know, here are some ways where I realized that I really do have a part, have contributed have, you know, fill in the blanks. So, you know, and, and, and here's the thing, I think it's irresponsible and untrue to say that just because you wear a certain skin color that you're a racist. I, I, I just, that, that, that does not speak of the Lord's truth. Um, but again, a person has to, to take a serious look at their actions And and who's who's around them. And again, you know, the other thing is that that just by being around people of color does not make you absolved from the analysis. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want to say, well, you know, I have a, a black whatever fill in the blank, you know, person of color in my family or my best friend is, you know, and proximity to people of color doesn't make you an expert. And it certainly doesn't make you. Um, outside of this analysis, like, we all have to go through the analysis and ask ourselves, you know, it may not be overtly racist behavior, but it could be um, pejorative behavior that affects how you interact with your brothers and sisters in Mm -hmm. the Lord. You know, for example, I always ask people, you know, do you or do you not have people of color that are your friends, They're like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, this person at work or, you know, if they're a little bit younger, like, yeah, my high school friends or, you know, I got these buddies from college. And I said, and and I usually say, I'm not talking about any particular Mm -hmm. conversation, but I usually say, these people can be defined as friends if you can call them right now and it wouldn't be awkward, Mm -hmm. you know, and so. And and it usually takes people back because it takes people uh, back, I should say, because, you know, they think to themselves, you know, you're right. Like these aren't close relations um, and why, you know, and so, you know, the badge of honor is not just having a person of color that you can call your friend, but it is an access point into understanding the experience. and, And that's a first step. You know and i've I've also, you know, on that end, um, had interesting conversations with a, one in particular Bishop who asked people in his diocese to just have a conversation with a person of color that you normally wouldn't talk to. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. There was a story about a guy who just started talking to his FedEx delivery person and how transformational that conversation yeah. was yeah you know and so I, I think that in a lot of situations if you ask people of color what their experiences are day to day you know there's a lot of invisibility being experienced by people of color and even that you know you may not be overtly doing anything to anybody to but be aware you're of not, right yeah and if you're not looking people in the eye and, and you know you're you don't know people's names you pass on the street every single day um, you got to ask yourself, you know, why am I not engaging in this particular population's um, gifts, experiences, existence on the planet?
2: We only have about a minute or so left, and this is a fascinating sure. topic. And I was—I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> sure. That you can just kind of—you could talk about this for a long time. There's a lot here. Um, I want to m- mention too for people um, how to access uh, the document, and and there is a yeah. study guide, and I think yeah. that might be helpful. Talk yeah. a little bit about how to access, and a little bit about the study guide.
3: Sure, it's very very simple. You go to usccb.org/racism. And we've got our page loaded up with all sorts of resources. Uh, On the top of the page, you'll find the most recent statement by uh, the Anti-Racism Committee and several other bishops. And then in terms of the study guide, it's a very robust guide for Catholics to figure out how to interact with these issues through a Mm -hmm. Catholic lens. You'll find all sorts of definitions and interpretations from all sorts of people who don't have a Judeo-Catholic lens, and it's very, very important that the people of God have that, and the study guide walks you slowly through how to um, make the lessons of the study guide your own,
2: Daniel, thanks so much for taking some time this morning I, I, I knew this was going to happen we could have we, we We can. Uh, to say we scratched the, the surface is probably an exaggeration Absolutely. so perhaps we'll uh, do this again sometime thank you for we your work and um, www.usccb.org slash racism is how you access the document okay. Daniel, thanks so much
1: Later in the same program, Bob had a conversation about the reopening of our churches for public mass with the Vicar General of the Archdiocese of Chicago, Bishop Ron Hicks. Here is a highlight of that discussion. Bishop Hicks, you with us?
2: Yeah. good morning, Bob. Hey. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Good to talk to you. Um... So I I was thinking, like, I bet you never in a million years did you think when you were going to seminary and becoming a priest, did you think you would be in charge of or have a key role in reopening churches, huh?
4: No, you know, I've learned to believe in God's providence even more. You yeah. never know what life is going to uh, give yeah. and
2: uh, who to thought? Our
4: our responsibility is to respond.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, um where tell us a little bit about where we are in the planning process because I do get questions about it. I think it does sort of depend on your individual Parish, but in the archdiocese in general, um, the plan is underway, and 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 churches are either open or will be reopened pretty soon.
4: Correct. We put together a very robust uh, plan to reopen our parishes that uh, made sure when they do get reopened, that people have access to public worship and to the sacraments, which they should have, and it's um, and we're excited about that. So we're we're happy that it's going towards the reopening. And at the same time, the the plans include every measure that we can think of, so that uh, people remain safe, and uh, and that we're looking for ways that w- we're we're staying healthy, that we're not spreading the virus. So it's uh, the the plan on a very basic level is saying that uh, each parish should have a a pastor and, and a team of people. Who participate in some training first. So there's some training of saying, how do you reopen our churches safely for everyone? And uh, that training included um, uh, a webinar that they needed to participate in, mm-hmm. and then forming a team, and getting teams of, of greeters, and cleaners, and people who are going to be organized at the parish level to make sure that things like uh, social distancing and, and sanitizing afterwards are going through, and some guidelines also. So that was the training, and once parishes went through training, um, they get their teams together, and they put together their own plan based on our guidelines for their parish. Those plans are submitted to a, a group of us here at the Archdiocese for this um, kind of a task force looking at all the issues around COVID-19. It's presented to us, and then we then certify the, the parishes for reopening, saying, yeah, you, you look like you've got your plan together, you look like you're following the guidelines, and you're, you're ready to go. The further certification has uh, a couple of phases, though. Um, so you, you could be certified first for Phase 1, which is uh, it's a very small and slow opening first. Phase 1 says that you can have up to 10 people for a funeral, for a wedding, for reconciliation, um, and then it's uh, it goes it goes to phase one A, which is then a reopening for private prayer and devotion like um, eucharistic adoration, rosary, etc. So phase one one A, and then after they've demonstrated that they've done at least uh, three of those that they've had a, a small funeral or
3: mm-hmm. a
4: small baptism or a small wedding and they've done three of those are small reopening for private prayer, they can then apply for phase two, which is the reopening for, for mass, for weekend masses, Sunday masses, and then daily masses also. And um, for those masses that they um, they can use a, a kind of a per capita seating that it's not limited to just 10 people, but say you can go up to between 15 and 20 percent. So, if your if your church fits a thousand people, mm-hmm. you you, can, you might have up to 150 people, 200 people at one particular service, following all the guidelines. So that would be phase two. Bob, I'd just like to share some numbers with you. Please. Um, with what does that look like? As of Friday, here in the Archdiocese of Chicago with our you know three hundred and some parishes, two hundred and seventy seven of them have been certified for phase one, uh, two hundred and fifty four for phase one A, and then one hundred and sixty two were certified for phase two of the reopening plan. So it's um every parish is different. and and yeah. we, we've told people that. Go at your own pace. Yep. If, if you can get the volunteers and the people, and they're ready to go, and you're, some people had their plans <laughs> literally done kind of six hours after our <laughs> webinar. They had everything going, and they, yeah. they were anxious. And they're doing great. Yeah. And others, it takes a little bit more time to, to convince people and to say this is something we should be doing. So people are going at their own pace, and we're helping them along the way.
2: I have to say, so uh, our parish, um, we went yesterday, uh, and we were at the f- max of fifty uh, sure. c- c- a- a place in the in the in the org chart or the the progression. And um, I have to say, there was a couple things that I think uh, you know, just personally noting that it was extremely well organized. Um, I mean, to the point of like you really noticed it. Uh, it. It was a little awkward. We had a reservation system, so it was kind of like uh, right. you know checking in for my. Table of three, you know, was my wife, my son, and I. So it, it's just, it's a different experience. I think people need to know that it's not going to be the experience that you've had your entire life that you recall back on March sixth when we were last, whenever we were last at church. It is different. Um, but right. you know, I, I guess you know, my neighbor, we were talking about it yesterday, and they said, "How did it go?" And I said, "Well, a, it, I think the thing impression with me is it's extremely well organized. It is clear that um, it, it, there's an abundance of caution." Uh, right. in, in everything we do. For example, before uh, before receiving Eucharist, before communion, they went and sprayed our hands a second time. You know, we got sprayed when we walked in, we got sprayed a second time. My hands have never been so clean. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a different experience. You know, it enables you to receive the Eucharist. So we're ahead of, we're ahead of the game. Um, but in, in the windows were open. There was clear ventilation. You know, it was just a, a very uh, different experience. I think it's going to take a little getting used to. And I, I think w- now next week we'll go up back up to the, the percentage capacity. So we'll have a lot more people there. And that will feel different. And I think that will be better. Um the no singing, yeah, you know, it's a little awkward, but I think you get used to it. So, it's it's. I think people just need to know it's it's not going to be the same thing you're used to. But on the other hand, um, I, I think it's a step in the right direction because I'll just speak personally. Um, watching it on TV or on the laptop is, I think I've I think we've maxed on that. Um, but for some people, I think they're going to have to keep doing that for a little while longer. So it was an interesting experience. I'll say that
4: no no that's right and you're pointing to you know every parish has to do it to their own pace but we do want people we're we're using an abundance of caution yes. but we want people to return to the eucharist and we want to provide that so it's uh we are not only being cautious with uh, the guidelines and all the protocols but um we also want to create environments that people feel safe returning.
2: yes
3: it was there, safe
4: yeah, there's some people who will yep. just say, you know, I, I'm not going out of my house and, and I, I can't go. But to, to return to the Eucharist, th- this is this is the heart of who we are as church, and um, and so providing these sort of things and saying we are taking it seriously and we're looking to the you know to the best of our ability yeah. to it- make it a safe experience.
2: It accomplishes those two things. It it is clear, it, you know. My, my perception is, and I'm not saying this. I'm just this was my. Per- it is extremely safe. I mean, there's people with masks. I said you have to spray your hand. Uh, there was no singing. Um, it, it is clear that you are in the safest environment as you possibly could. I would compare it to being in your own home. Um, probably more safe uh, than being in your home. Um, and then, secondly, you know, we were able to read the Eucharist. So, I, you know, like I said, you know, said, I think we're ahead of the game. Uh, and then, you know, that sense of community—it was there a little bit. You know, um, people did sort of, you know, they didn't mingle as long as they would after a normal mass. But it was good to see people again, and that you haven't seen in quite a while. So it was, it was a positive experience, and it was shorter too. It was, it was not probably as long as as a normal mass would be, but that's because of the singing and and it's just cognizant of what's going on. Around around you, um, you know. One of the things that I, I, we got two minutes left is that uh, I, I think it's probably important to keep keep in mind. It was extremely well organized signage and everything. But you know, this costs money to do this. This is an extra cost sure. and burden on the parishes, right?
4: That's that's correct. Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, I think it's a chance to keep this in mind that um, because we haven't been at at masses frequently, to please you know continue giving. Um, through the ways, through your parish, a lot of them have the Give Central program. or um, So any contributions that could be made to help offset some of those increasing costs and the costs that uh, have not been able to been collected would, would deeply be appreciated. Um, any uh, feedback you've been hearing briefly about it so far? I, I, are people satisfied, to, to, do you think, or what, what's you, the general perception you,
4: know, you get? Here, here's the thing. Throughout, throughout the whole... Uh, Throughout this whole process, we, we receive constant feedback, and it's going to be a, a bit of a mix. Yep. For for some people, it's it's we're going way too slow. For f- some people, way too fast. But but overall, parishes have been very cooperative in terms of following the guidelines, and they want to do the right thing. And the majority have just been grateful, saying, "Thank you for giving us a plan. Mm-hmm. Thank you for giving us something that we can follow and do this together." And, and, and and be safe, and now bring the sacraments and the Eucharist together. So, overall, it's been—it's not only been um, well received overall, but it's—it's um, it's been a collaborative effort. Also, it's—it's um, it's been good working with the different, the different personnel, and the different authorities, and uh, the different groups, and also working with the different bishops in in the state of Illinois. I know Cardinal Supich and the other bishops uh regularly on conference calls saying how are we doing this how are we doing things together each diocese is a bit different with some Mm -hmm. of the guidelines based on the density of population and you know the diversity and you know each diocese is a bit different but there's there's just been a, a good sense of we want to do this we want to do it right and um a good sense of collaboration.
2: I think we are, and and I think most people appreciate, like you said, there being a plan and we're moving forward. That's clear. Uh, yeah, we've we've kind of come out of the the where we were, and now at least we're able to go back. And then you know, hopefully, God willing, as we move on, and we'll be able to expand that more and more. And pray that there's a vaccine or treatment, and we we'll can just go back to where it used to be. That'd be nice. But uh, this is the situation we have to deal with, and we have to be safe. And I think we're doing that, and we're able to just receive the Eucharist. So we're we're doing we're at least we're on the right track
4: amen and let's move forward it's uh this this holy hunger that we all have yeah. for for the lord for just this celebrating corpus christi yesterday and it's uh it, it's it's a good thing it, to be back at the eucharist and is. moving forward i agree
2: it is good bishop hicks thanks for your work on this i know like i said uh, not one of the things that you probably uh thought you would be doing but like you said yeah it, who knows a job description as 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 provided right who do, who knows what it's going to be next
4: that, that's right. All we do is uh, we surrender and we trust. Exactly. We with the Lord. Yeah, thanks great. for your
2: great work on this, and thanks for the developing and the plan and, and all the good work you've done
1: with this. Thanks so much.
4: Uh, God bless you, and God bless all.
1: Our thanks to Bob and Bishop Hicks for that timely information as we all look forward to returning to our churches and participating in the Eucharist. Stick around. After a short break, we will hear from the wonderful people at Catholic Charities. Back in a moment.
5: How do you transform an important annual fundraising event during a pandemic? The Lake County Women's Board of Catholic Charities has just the answer. Experience the Art of Caring, an online opportunity to support our neighbors in Lake County who have been affected in the most significant ways by COVID-19. For 31 years, the Lake County Women's Board has raised funds through the Art of Caring to benefit Catholic Charities programs and services that enrich the lives of seniors, veterans, families, and individuals in Lake County. Now, and through June 30th, you can join in these efforts to ensure that this life-affirming work continues. All donations are most gratefully accepted. Go to catholiccharities.net slash artofcaring to learn more, or call 847-782-4119. Catholic Charities 2020 Art of Caring, an innovative, memorable way to help others keep hope for a brighter future.
6: Henry Ford once said, a business that makes nothing but money is a poor business. At Catholic Charities, we are deeply grateful to our corporate partners who agree with Henry Ford. Some of our corporate partners make a financial commitment each year to the work of Catholic Charities. Other partners donate or offer reduced prices on goods and services that help our clients find stability in their lives. Still other corporate leaders gather their employees and regularly volunteer at our food pantries and our suppers for the homeless. For over a century, support from businesses large and small has been vital to our efforts to strengthen the lives of individuals and communities, one person, one family at a time. If you'd like to join us in our mission, please call 312-948-6864. That's 312-948-6864. Thank you.
0: We invite you to watch Catholic Chicago this weekend, featuring a conversation with Cardinal Blaise Cupich and video highlights from across the archdiocese. Here's host Todd Williamson.
1: We'll talk with Cardinal Blaise Cupich about the outreach efforts underway by the Catholic Church to help people in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll show you how online masses have become a common way of worship, and we'll give you a sampling of how teachers and students in Catholic schools are being creative and productive during the health crisis.
0: Watch Catholic Chicago Friday at 7 p.m. on Chicago Loop Cable, Channel 25, and Sunday afternoon at 3 on the Comcast Network, Channel 100.
5: Catholic Charities has had the privilege of helping people in need in Cook and Lake County for more than 100 years. We have been ready through many historic moments and we continue to respond with competence and compassion during these unprecedented times. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our frontline workers, who despite the risks, excel at their jobs every day. From the warehouse staff members who pack boxes of nutritious foods for low-income seniors, to the dedicated WIC employees who remain open for families with children under the age of five, to our volunteers and restaurant partners who ensure that to-go meals continue for the homeless, To our home care aides, service coordinators, and trained counselors who continue their work in the most innovative ways. To our food pantry staff, and to all those who work at Catholic Charities Call Center, finding solutions for every person who reaches out to us for help. Charity is at the heart of all you do, and we salute you.
0: You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on relevant radio 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review.
1: Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. This week on The Voice of Charity, host Marie Jochum and guest host Philip Buta welcomed Sean Garrett, President and Chief Executive Officer for the United Way of Metropolitan Chicago, and Helene Gale, President and Chief Executive Officer for the Chicago Community Trust to discuss the collaboration in addressing racial disparities and ensuring that individuals and communities continue to have their basic needs met. Let's take a listen.
5: Welcome back to The Voice of Charity. This is Marie Jocum, and I'm here today with my co-host, Phil Buda. Um, we're talking with um, Sean Garrett, the president and CEO of United Way of Metro Chicago, and Dr. Gale, president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. Right before the break, Sean, we were speaking with you a little bit um, about making visible the invisible. And I, I also read your statement and, and was struck by, again, these three... Areas of focus that United Way that we know United Way has um, always been committed to, but just sort of calling out and they' they're working together to find solutions, partnering with community-based organizations, following their leadership, um, and then advocating for reforms. And so I think this leads great into our conversation today on on how we do this together as partners.
7: I agree. Uh, You know, Catholic Charities has such a tremendous history with both of these wonderful partners over the decades. Um, And we have been immensely grateful uh, to have received two generous grants recently from the Chicago Community COVID-19 Response Fund um, that we've been using primarily for addressing food insecurity, uh, financial assistance to uh, some of the people that we serve, we're hoping that you both can tell us today a little bit about how the fund came together so quickly. Who called who and why joined forces?
8: Yeah, I, I can get, do a quick start there. I mean, we, in many ways, I think uh, Helene and I uh, came together at the same time. Um, we both had saw, were seeing what was happening around the country, specifically in Seattle. Um, and, you know, you saw in Seattle where the virus um, you know, had hit earlier than it did here, um, the, the local government, along with the United Way and the local community foundation, had come together. Um, and what that would do was provide a central way for um, individuals, foundations, and companies to, to give, um, but also would provide a central way for nonprofits to access these resources. Um, and so, you know, we traded emails. Um, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday, um, connected with the mayor's office. Everyone said, hey, let's, let's go do this and over what was the course of a very busy weekend, um, we were able to really stand up the fund and we launched it on a Monday with nearly $8 million already in. And this was a testament to the commitment and the opportunity that people saw to to respond and respond quickly. Um, And the fund quickly grew from there. Um, It was $12 million after the first week and um, as of this morning was over $33 million. And so um, it's really grown quickly. but it was, I think, just a recognition from so many in our community that there, there was going to be a need, there was going to be economic hardship, and we had an infrastructure to support it, but we had to do it together. Um, and very grateful that everyone said, now is the time and let's go do it together.
5: I, I, I love that, and I think you know that that speaks to both the leadership on both of your parts, and also this idea that um, together we really can do more. I know we we have seen that um, really even from a very baseline level of of um, our community, local community partners coming together, whether that's a local grocery store or whether that's a volunteer who's going to um, help us fund a lunch, or you know, uh, so many people have wanted to come. Together and and to do something, and I think this gives such a such a beautiful way to do that. Dr. Gale, from from your perspective, that those few days leading up to sort of this launch, what what were they like for you and your team?
9: Uh, they were constant <laughs> around the clock. Um, yeah, um, very rapid response times. But, you know, as, as Sean said, it really did come together um, in an amazingly wonderful way. And, you know, I think that the complementarity of our two organizations really came into play. We both bring different assets to the table, but we have teams um, who really understand no community and really have come together and functioned as a single team. You know, really um, getting their shared expertise, their shared experience together, so that we could make good decisions around where these dollars uh, were going to, and do that in a very rapid times. Because you know, we really wanted to make sure dollars flowed, got to the communities uh, most hard hit, and did that in a way that, as Sean said earlier, really supported communities um, in their their own efforts to really be able to make a difference. So. Um, it has been an incredibly gratifying experience and i would say although you know united way and chicago community trust are leading in this you know we have been joined by our other uh, partners in philanthropy individuals uh, 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 corporations etc and so this has really been a real community effort if you will and a real coming together of different parts of our um, uh, society all wanting to make a difference at this incredibly critical moment.
5: When you were first looking to fund, what were you looking to fund initially? Um, And what are you hearing from organizations about the needs they're seeing?
9: Well, we've really taken the stance that, you know, back to your earlier uh, point, that we knew that this was going to, the economic impact of this was what was going to be really uh, felt in many of the communities Uh, across the city and and the county and so we were really focusing not so much on providing health services although you know throughout this funding we have provided some access to services but really primarily people's basic needs at a time of crisis so food shelter getting cash to people so they could pay their bills and stay in their homes and uh, a big focus on those aspects while also recognizing that there were some needs, uh, particularly around testing, around mental health and some of the health aspects of this disease that that, uh, where there were some gaps as well, but really a lot on the economic impact of uh, this pandemic.
5: And I, you know, as I'm listening to both you, Dr. Gale, and Sean, I'm, I'm hearing so many of the things, the last few weeks we've had many of our frontline staff on and, and what they're talking about are the needs that you are exactly highlighting, right? So I, I love how this all kind of comes together, those economic needs, the food, the shelter, the housing, um, and also seeing an increase in, in behavioral health needs. So I think um, this all works better when we do it together. Uh, Sean. Yeah, it was. Wanted to ask
7: you a question. Um, as kind of a follow-up. And how does a crisis like this pandemic and its economic fallout demonstrate the need, the need for, and the power of community foundations, United Ways, and other collaborative responses?
8: Yeah, you know, I think there's a, a couple things that I think about in this. Um, you know, first of all, when we think statewide and even nationwide, um, United Ways uh, alone have raised nearly a billion dollars across our country. Um, and that's not because United you know, ways are great at doing this, it's because the infrastructure exists to be able to, to respond. And in times of crisis, people want to be able to give, but we also want to have an efficient, effective way to get resources out to community. Locally, we saw that across the state. Um, the state of Illinois, um, in, in part later, under the leadership of Penny Pritzker, um, actually set up a fund. And, you know, Helene and I um, were able to help support that effort. Um, But what was interesting is, as the dollars were raised, they were looking for an effective way to distribute around the state. And the natural answer was through United Ways and Community Foundations, um, because those organizations were set up um, to to be able to know the needs in a local community, to know the partners in a local community, and then to be able to provide those resources. Um, And so the effective and efficient um, ways that we have been doing for literally decades now Um, when put in times of crisis, we're able to respond and move really quickly. And I think that's something that, you know, we've been very lucky here in Chicago to have this kind of partnership. We've been lucky to see it across the state, um, but also to see it now across the country. The other thing I just highlight for a moment is I I think times like this also show the the makeup and, um, commitment of the sector. Mm -hmm. And I I don't want that to get lost in, in some of our conversations. You know, you talked about having some of your frontline, um, Kind of service providers, on and, and partners and staff, you know those folks are going in every single day at risk to themselves, and yet they're doing it because they're called to the mission. They want to be there to support their friends, families, and neighbors. I mean that's an incredible commitment. And you know at a time where we're told to socially distance, told to stay away, not everyone can do that. People who are working on those front lines, people who are ensuring yeah. the mental health of. Of friends and families, you know, it, there's there's a real need for that, and I think we're seeing just the commitment of those leaders throughout this community, um, and it's something I know that we find just incredibly inspiring, and are grateful that the resources through this fund have been able to help those individuals who are taking these risks go in every single day to do this great work.
5: Sean, you know, I thank you for saying that, and I I feel so similarly. Just watching, really, the heroes at Catholic Charities and other organizations throughout Chicago, and obviously throughout the world as well. But watching, watching these frontline workers, um, they're they're real heroes. And something struck me that our CEO Kathy Donahue said. Kind of at the beginning of this, to um, to frontline staff, you know, she said, "We know how to do this. We're social workers. We know how to do this. We're gonna. We did this before. Uh, we're gonna do it during, and we will continue doing it after." And I think. Um, Organizations like yourself and the Chicago Community Trust being creative and innovative and coming together like this really has helped um, not only Catholic Charity staff, but countless other service providers and folks on those front lines um, be able to continue doing that work that they did before, that they're doing during, and and that they're going to continue doing long after. How, um, Dr. Gail and Sean, how do you see your organizations continuing to work together like this collaboratively and innovatively really?
9: Well, you know, um, I think we're going to have to, um, if, if I go a day without talking to Sean, I don't, know. I don't feel like my day is right. So we we're joined at the hip. Um, our, our staffs are joined at the hip. And I think, you know, it really does speak to the power of collaboration. I think we have enjoyed this experience as, as much for the fact that we're learning and getting to know colleagues who really um, add to the richness of the work that we're doing. And so, you know, the job isn't done. We have done um, hopefully a lot to make a difference in the communities during this immediate um, challenge of covid but there's a lot that needs to be done afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, we when we think about the economic um, uh, shutdown and what it has done to communities that were already financially insecure, you know, there's going to be a big job to kind of restart and, and really infuse economic vitality into communities that were already disinvested in um, before this pandemic. So we really – Want to continue working together as we think about what does it mean to have a recovery that has equity at the center and at the focus of the work that we do? And you know, I think um, we recognize that we can do it better together than um, on our own. So,
5: I think I <laughs> I, think, I want I to Sean clap. To I, can I clap on the radio? <laughs> The, you know thank you i thank you for your leadership and your your vision for for both of you i think you know catholic charities 100 years ago was founded um at the there was another pandemic right the spanish flu was was happening and and what that was was a group of people coming together and again as phil shared with me in the beginning we were doing this together with both of you um, not us all together. But our organizations, were doing this together um, from the beginning. And we look forward to continuing to learn from you and to walk alongside you in this.
7: Yeah, Dr. Gail and Sean, we can't thank you enough for the support you've given Catholic Charities over the years, and particularly during this extraordinary time of need. Uh, it makes such a difference in the number of people we can help. So we're so very grateful for that,
1: that support. And a reminder that you can find out more about all the wonderful ministries and services of Catholic Charities and how you can help by going to catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. Our final segment today comes from the program produced by the Office of Evangelization and Missionary Discipleship called On The Way. Host Beth White led a conversation with the Director of Human Dignity and Solidarity, Ryan Lentz. Here's a highlight.
10: We do a phone call. Um, it's not going to be every three weeks, but during the um, the height of the pandemic, it was every week. It's called Tuesdays Together, and it's an archdiocesan-wide um, sort of meeting, right? It's a mm-hmm. online meeting. And so... Um, Ryan was featured last week on Tuesdays together to talk about the Catholic response um, to the racial injustice that we're seeing right now. So um, I thought it'd be great for him to be on and talk a little bit about it and then talk about the resources from his office, Human Dignity and Solidarity. So mm-hmm. Ryan, so can you tell us a little bit about what you guys have been up to in these last couple of weeks to respond to this?
11: Yeah, well, I think part of it is just making folks aware of some great resources that um, that are out there. Um, one that I would start with right away is um, uh, less than two years ago, the U.S. Catholic bishops issued a new pastoral letter on racism called Open Wide Our Hearts. It had been about 40 years since um, the, the the collective body of the U.S. bishops had, had issued a letter on uh, racism, the previous one being called Brothers and Sisters to Us, that I believe, um, was published in 1979. So it had had been a long time since the the whole body of bishops had weighed in on on racism in a major letter. And this came out, and it talked a lot about um, many of the kind of current issues that um, have been... Um, embroiling our country, um, you know, in the last few years, um, you know, as Black Lives Matter has has kind of come to the fore and, and other issues, and um, and so the the letter itself uh, is available um, at usccb.org/racism. But what they also did is they developed a lot of really helpful resources for parishes and schools to use. And so there are educational resources from young kids all the way to adult uh, age level. Um, you know, lesson plans and and reflection guides and things like that. Um, the the ad hoc committee on racism that really took the lead on on developing this letter um, has also issued some new statements and le- um, videos and other resources um, even within the last couple of weeks. So if you go to usccb.org/racism, you'll find all of those uh, resources there. Um, there's also just some amazing books out there. Um, one that I recommend to, to folks who are Catholic is uh, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. It was written about 10 years ago by, um, by Father Brian Massingale, who um, folks may know he was at, the, uh, or at the Marquette for a number of years. He's at Fordham University now, um, but he did an amazing uh, job of just really kind of um, looking at the history of, of Catholic Church documents um, on racism. And, and really, just looking at the reality of the Catholic Church, and and a lot of it is is really lamenting, um, you know, the the racial injustice that has been uh, present even within our church over the many years. Um, but also providing some really creative ways to look at how we can move forward, and really embracing uh, our tradition, using things like our sacraments and other forms of prayer and, and action that can help us to move forward. Um, so those are two um, with a specifically Catholic lens that I would recommend right off the bat for, for individuals or groups that are, are wanting to kind of go deeper um, into their learning and into their reflection about where the Catholic Church is.
10: So what's interesting is the Open Wide Our Hearts, I, um, I recently read that since all of this has been happening, just to get a perspective um, from the Catholic Church, and it deals with African Americans. It also deals with— um, Native Americans and Hispanics and really um, the root of sin of racism and how we um, how we may not think that we're individually racist, um, but the systems in place are persistently um, show that there's a, um, a sort of a dominant race over the other races. Um, what is some of the work that... Um, so have you... Like in terms of this document, what struck you in this document?
11: Well, I think the point you're making is is very well said. That you know, oftentimes when we when we start talking about race and racism, um, I think where we end up having a stumbling block is when we get stuck talking about individual actions. Exactly. Oftentimes, people. And thankfully, you know, we live in a society that being labeled a racist is considered this terrible shame and something that people don't. No one wants to be, you know, outed as a racist. Um, but I think if we just get stuck thinking about personal bigotry, personal prejudices, we miss out on the bigger reality, which is that 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 um, that race prejudice has been deeply embedded within our systems and institutions. And as you say you know we and and i think a, a lot of this what i've recognized on my own journey is a lot of it is relearning our history because mm-hmm. often, you know when we, we we can't talk about the history of the united states without talking about the genocide of the native american people yeah. who were on this land before european settler, settlers arrived and the uh, and and the reality that that much of our country was built on the backs of african slaves so you know we we that, that that's so central to the, the the telling of the story of our nation um, and we don't always fully acknowledge that you know that's a, that's, a, that's a, the legacy of that still is with us today, and so um, you know when we think about how our educational system is formed, when we think about um, representation within government, when we think about the the, ju- the judicial system and the justice system, when we think about um, how housing has played out over the years. Um, racism is, is deeply embedded within these, these different systems and institutions, and and while we've made progress in many ways over the years, you know, certainly we can look at the progress made in the 1960s, for example, um, in, in the civil rights era, um, There's there's still much, much, much work that needs to be done if we want to be serious about dismantling racism, and so we need to, rather than looking at that kind of individual bias, we need to have an analysis that really looks at, okay, how are systems and institutions that we're all part of, whether we want to be part of them or not, um, you know, we, we, we have to come up with solutions that really addresses that, that level.
10: I was, um, I've been really struck. I listened to NPR when I used to drive back and forth to work a lot, and there were a lot of stories on the education system here in Chicago. And there was a particular story about – and I'm not going to know all the details because I haven't done research, but I just remember this story – is that there was a school that was predominantly African-American that was sort of down the street from this more gentrified community that had become – this school had become – very white, and it had grown beyond capacity. And instead of um, sort of blending with that other school, that school, the the predominantly white school, was advocating for expanding f- its physicality um, and not actually opening itself up to blending with the predominantly African-American school. And it was interesting because all studies show that um, all tides lift. So um, every education study shows that by having a um, a very diverse group of folks, um, the, the children are stronger and they grow and they learn. It doesn't. They don't get pulled down, as it were. Um, they get mm-hmm. lifted up. And um, I was struck by the fact that statistics are showing that our school systems are becoming more and more um, segregated, um, which is something that was fought hard against in the 1960s. Um, but mm-hmm. just because of neighborhoods, and those are interesting things that we don't even think about. I think sometimes um, that we're part of that whole process without whether we realize it or not. Sometimes.
11: Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it really speaks to um, oftentimes how how decisions are made out of fear, too. Right? Yes. You know, we all mm-hmm. we all want the best for our families and for our children, and, and you know, making decisions that are in the best interest of, of the, you know, the flourishing of our our families is, is, you know, that's, that's being a responsible parent. But I think it's also, yeah, to your, to your point, you know, making, making the, the, the leap to to also understand, okay, well, it's not just my individual choices here, you know, like the, the decisions that we make as a community, oftentimes I think we, we kind of get very narrow Kind of tunnel vision about these things, and we don't always recognize, okay, well, if we really want to embrace our, our Catholic identity and saying right. that we are all, you know that you know everybody in our neighborhood is our brothers and sisters, how do we come up with solutions that are not just best for my individual family, but also how do we how do we find solutions that that really do uh, raise up the uh, the whole community and and come up with uh, solutions that um, you know that are just and equitable for all?
10: There's a beautiful quote in this um, letter, Open Wide Our Hearts, and it's on evangelization. And because people are like, well, what does this conversation have to do with evangelization? And it's a beautiful quote, and it's from what we have seen and heard, a pastoral letter on evangelization from the black bishops of the United States, and it's from 1984. And the quote is, evangelization, which is the work of the church, means not only preaching, but witnessing, not only conversion, but renewal not only entry into the community, but the building up of the community. race, And then it goes on to say racism is a moral problem that requires a moral remedy, a transformation of the human heart that impels us to act. And I thought that was incredibly beautiful that, you know, it isn't this moment in time is an opportunity for us to individually sort of reflect on our own biases or, our own sort of understanding of things, and maybe we aren't biased, but how do the systems in which we participate in, um, and that's about renewal, right? Mm-hmm. And that's about us being witnesses to Jesus Christ, that we're all brothers and sisters from the same God, and um, and it's about building up our communities. Um, so what are some ways that people can act in this time, Ryan?
11: Well, w- one thing that I think um, you're naming really powerfully is how— we need to find spaces for encounter and for dialogue yeah. and for, um, for that, that kind of, um, renewal to occur. Yep. And, and, uh, I think from in my experience, one of the most powerful tools that I've ever encountered with this is, um, is a tool called uh, peacemaking circle, which is actually, we, we get this tradition from, um, our indigenous brothers and sisters, people who inhabited this land long before our ancestors arrived. Um, you know, using talking circles to resolve conflict, to um, discern big decisions, to um, mark you know passage of of, this, of seasons and, and special occasions, and so um, we're very blessed in Chicago to have a number of um, great locations like the Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation and other places that are really embracing restorative justice and using peacemaking circles as a tool to. Um, to just break open spaces for, for telling stories and creating safe and sacred spaces together that um, can kind of create a better quality of space together that often I don't feel like always happens because we, we are in such a fast-moving world and we don't always have the opportunity to, to be in spaces where we really can honor one another's stories and recognize that everybody does have a story to tell. And, uh, and so one of the things we're actually going to be doing with our office is um, is offering a series of virtual peace circles. We're still obviously in a, in a tough moment where we can't all congregate in large groups together. Um, but but it's amazing to me, even in a virtual space using Zoom or Microsoft Teams or what have you, how it's still very possible to, to be able to kind of embrace the, the principles of, of listening and respect and confidentiality and, and, and being able to... to Really reflect on, on big questions that can allow us to use our stories to, um, to connect on a deeper level. And I think that what I found is that these are using circles oftentimes we, we come up with much better solutions because if we just jump to, okay, what's the problem, what's the solution? Well, we all have our own biases, as we've said, right? Mm-hmm. We all have our own limitations, and we only have our own experiences. So when we, when we kind of embrace that, hey, there, everybody has a gift to share and everybody has a perspective that will bring us to a better solution, when we finally get to the place of actually talking about what do we do as a community of faith, we're going to have the richness of that diversity and the richness of those different experiences. To inform
1: those decisions. Here's a reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. We have daily Masses and Sunday Masses in English, Spanish, and Polish. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Chicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m. And Vision for televising our Polish language mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio, 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great Father's Day weekend, everyone. Join us every Saturday
0: morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.